Welcome to Cognation. I'm Joe Hardy. And I'm Rolf Nelson. What is the relationship of our perception to reality? Perceptual psychologist Donald Hoffman has an interesting theory in a recent book of his called The Case Against Reality, that in fact there's no relationship between our perceptions and reality at all. So this is going to be the topic of our of our show today. And yeah, we, Donald Hoffman is not going to be on the show. Uh, we asked him to if he wanted to participate, and he uh, didn't respond. So that's all good. But uh, we're going to try to steel man his argument to the extent possible, and uh, try to make sense of it, and then you know talk about some of our feelings about the theory as well. Okay, so let's try to get. So this is a big theory. So let's try to get a. a a grasp on exactly what it is that Hoffman is claiming. So again, the book is called The Case Against Reality. And the basic idea here uh, involves the uh, uh, the combination of three different um, theoretical ideas uh, from evolutionary psychology to uh, a, more of a philosophical kind of look at things. And the first of these ideas is uh, something that he's been working on for a number of years, which is the idea that evolution specifically does not give us truth or does not converge onto real truthful perceptions. That is that um, evolution works in a way that uh, we respond to what he calls fitness payoffs or what, what researchers call fitness payoffs, that we pass on our genes if, if something is more fit and more likely for us to um, reproduce uh, rather than uh, directly perceived truth. Yeah, and, and here he's really talking about uh, the idea of veridical perception or the fact that we don't see veridically. And the term veridical uh, in, this, in this context, vertical perception means that you're seeing things and hearing things, experiencing things in a sense correctly. So there's some sense of, of the truth. So like your perceptual illusions would be an example of this. So, you know, most people have seen examples of illusions that make something look the wrong size or the wrong height when it's compared to something different. So veridical perception would be the actual uh, true state of the world. And an illusion would be um, a deviation from that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, uh, you know, he's got a couple of different approaches to... Uh, talking about why you might believe this like because it's this is not um you know typically i think in most cognitive psychology today you people experience and people talk about perception as being oriented towards veridicality in other words that as evolution is pro progressing over time beings are evolving to perceive the world more and more veridically more and more correctly and that there's a natural relationship between the correct perception of the world truthful perception of the world and fitness and evolution. So these things should go together. And what he's actually saying is the opposite. He's saying, no, there's no relationship between the thing that you're, that, that is in the world that is, you know, the thing itself and your perception of it. there's just no relationship. And in fact, what you're experiencing is just a fitness function. It's just the, the thing that you're experiencing through your senses is just the thing that gives you the highest probability of surviving, essentially, and that that need not have any relationship to the thing to the actual way that the world is structured. 
So when you perceive the color red, for example, you're, you're not perceiving the true state of the world. You're perceiving something that's giving you information about, um, say, how red can influence your fitness. Maybe, you know, it, it, it could be you know, positive and you approach it because red is a good color and it helps you survive or, you know, or it's a bad color and you should move away from it. Um, so, so, I mean, the, the core statement here is that what we're experiencing is not anything to do with the real world, that, there, that we're essentially shaped by forces of evolution to only perceive what's uh, going to help us survive. And that, well, in Hoffman's view, that's opposed to truth or the reality, you know, the reality that actually exists out there. Right. And so, you know, the way that he kind of feels like he proves this, this is like his proof of this is based on some mathematical modeling that, that they do, where they basically try to build models of conscious agents. In other words, these systems that would react to, to simulated environments, essentially, and to basically give weights to whether something is perceived veridically or whether something is perceived as a function of its fitness relationship to the organism. And basically what their modeling suggests is that the fitness optimizing perceptual function always outcompetes and drives to extinction the veridical perception models. So an, ex an example that, that gets used, that he uses in the textbook is um, say you're an organism who is trying to get food. So if you perceived strictly the, the pure amount of food, it might not be the most fit thing because continuing to eat more and more food might not be the best strategy. Um, but if you perceive, if you directly perceive the fitness of what you're, <laughs> of what it is that you're going to eat, you, you may not get the number right because, uh, it may peak at some different areas. Um, but it'll be a better strategy and it'll be more likely to uh, be passed on to future generations. That's right, right exactly. Yeah, and you know, that, um, the, the, the details of that modeling, I think are a bit beyond the scope of this podcast uh, right now. Yeah, that was me trying to simplify it a little too much maybe, but. Um, yeah, yeah, but no, I, I think that's, but I think that's right. I mean, that, that's, that's exactly in, in what he's, the direction of what he's trying to say. And he's basically saying, well, so we've got these models that sort of prove that um, veridical perception is going to be outcompeted by perception that it, that is driven by fitness functions, and if those those these two things are separable and independent in his model, that's right. So I mean, so I think to kind of start to steal me on that a little bit, you know, uh, what we do know for sure is that the relationship between our sensory experiences and the world is complex and kind of strange in a way, if you think about it. We're, there's, first of all, there's tons of physical things that are happening in the world that we never perceive or never experience. So for example, small things like, you know, quarks and atoms and molecules, uh, you know, we just never see that stuff except in, you know, our, using our sensors in the lab. Uh, and so there's, there's some, you know, ultimately all the, you know, in our current, even just in our current sort of physicalist worldview of, uh, you know, four dimensions of space and time, you know, the, the things that make up our bodies 
you know, these interplay of energy and, and, and molecules and just how all these particles and energy systems kind of work together and energy and matter are not different. You know, that's all very strange to our day-to-day perceptions. And so the idea is that like, we don't really experience any of that stuff. So to say that like the red tomato is a red tomato, well, we know that it's also like, that's like a, that's like not the real nature of the thing. There's some, there's, it's a, it's composite and it's, and it's synthetic and, and also like part of everything else that's around it in this, you know, at some level of representation. So, you know, it makes sense to say that there is not a one, there's, there is, and it's true. There's not a one-to-one relationship between our sensory experience of the world and, and the world itself. And this is, I mean, this seems more obvious in some aspects of perception than others. I think maybe with taste, it seems most clear that there's, yeah. you know, what's happening with taste is essentially there's a, a molecule that's, you know, landing on our, our tongues and, and interacting with, um, you know, interacting with our taste buds. And that is not what we perceive at all. We don't perceive a molecule. And there's also no clear relationship between, you know, the shape of the molecule, the size of the molecule, and what it is that we're tasting. It seems to be pretty much determined by what's going to be good for us, right? That right. We want well, to think about think about like a sensation like umami. You're right. Yeah. You know, like even how to describe what that even is 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 difficult. Right. And certainly yeah. the relationship between the the what's the actual food is like and this sensation is is quite complex and not at I, all direct. Well, I think but I think with food and and the sense of taste there does seem to be a really clear relationship between what you perceive and its survival value, right? At that's right. Exactly. On, exactly. Right? Yeah, exactly. And that and that's exactly what what Hoffman's saying is that that's the thing that's being optimized for. Yeah, and if we're trying to steel man this a little bit, I think we can get some intuitions, you know, from taste, maybe some intuitions from color from perception. S- yeah. If if we're uh, you know, something we both study. So with color perception, I mean, color is essentially, you know, the the light that we perceive is essentially um, electromagnetic energy from 400 to 700 nanometers. So it really just varies on one dimension. Yet what we perceive are these opponent colors, red and green, um, blue and yellow, uh, set up in a way that um, is useful to us in in perceiving things out there in, in the world but not necessarily directly related to the physical quality of, of right. Exactly. There's no relationship between redness and like a longer wavelength. Yeah. You know, uh, electromagnetic radiation compared to blue. Right. I mean, there's, that's just essentially arbitrary uh, in that, in that sense. And I think this is also closely related to the idea of an umwelt, which is uh, the idea um and this is from this has been repopularized again in a recent book by Ed Young called An Immense World, where he talks about the the perceptual lives of all kinds of different organisms and right and exactly. uh, organisms have very particular things that they respond to. You know, we like to think as humans we're kind of aware of everything that's going on out there, but the umwelt of a human is still limited because we can only see certain ranges of light. Um, we only respond to you know, certain ranges of sound. We don't perceive electricity. We don't perceive other things that other creatures do. So we have this particular set of things that that we 
perceive in the world. Uh, yeah, exactly. And like, you know, for example, you know, some uh, insects will see ultraviolet light uh, and they'll experience that as like, you know, uh, you know, visually. And we never, we don't see that visually at all. Right. And then other animals will see in the infrared range. We don't experience that, you know, other lots of animals don't see color or don't see as high as dimension of color as, as we do. Uh, other organisms have higher dimensional color, but dimensional color vision than we do. And so it's like, which is correct? Which is the, the truth? Is it the thing that is colored or the thing that has a lot of different colors or, I mean, right. So like in that sense, there isn't really a direct relationship between the truth and, um, and I think you can, I think you can experience see that with those kinds of examples. But where, for me, where this really starts to become difficult is around space and, and time. So, um, Hoffman would also claim that space and time are just constructs that we use, um, like a, an, a user interface. And we'll talk about this a little bit more in detail, but space and time are, you know, just convenient ways of representing the world, much in the way that, you know, colors are convenient ways of representing wavelengths. And this is a difficult thing because I think we feel as though the spatial world is, is concrete and real in a way that maybe other things aren't that length, width, um, you know, time passing, that those things are, are more real. And Hoffman would say, no, that's a, that's a construct. That's something that we use in order to simplify things. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, for sure, it's also the case that, you know, again, to just kind of steel man this a little bit more, you know, it is the case that we certainly don't understand all of what's going on in physical reality in terms of even mathematically, like, are there, you know, there model, many models represent that there are higher dimensions of physical reality than those that we experience. So we experience four dimensions, but many models in different ways represent the world as having higher dimensionality than that. And we don't experience those. So I think what he's saying is that there's, a collapse, a kind of, you know, almost like in quantum mechanics where you, where you perceive something and then, then the waveform collapses yeah. is similar to something that's happening in dimensionality where in, in the act of experiencing it, the world is collapsing into those four dimensions, but it's actually happening in a, in a much, uh, you know, so the real things are happening in a, in a totally different set of dimensions. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Right. And something, and this is a, you know, this is tricky, a little bit tricky to follow, um, because this is where some of the math gets a little complex too. Um, but, but the idea would be that, that at a, at a higher dimensional space, when we can capture everything that exists in our world, plus more that the arrow of time doesn't exist. So there's no directionality of time. So, um, this might capture more about reality than what we're perceiving in our four dimensions. So. That would be the idea. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so, you know, that's interesting. And I think that's, all, again, this all, I think there's some really deep insights behind each of these arguments that he makes. Um, but I, I sort of lose him a little bit when he starts to talk about the idea that, you know, we're talking about like an object in the world, there's like a red tomato there. And he's saying, or the moon, he uses that example mm -hmm. a lot. You know, when he's, he's basically going back to the Bishop Barclay argument of saying it doesn't exist unless someone's perceiving it. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, this, so, is like, a, this is a part of his his theory that um, that I have a difficult time with too. I think it's a it's a tricky thing to wrap your head around the idea that something doesn't exist when you're it doesn't exist when you're not looking at it. Right. So basically, what he's saying that I think the linking hypothesis is something like um, because there's no relationship between the physical reality and your experience of the physical reality. The thing that you call the moon or the thing that you call the tomato is just something that, that is an, uh, an icon in your interface. Hmm. It's not a real thing in the world in any way. And I think that's the, in any way part is the part that like where I start to lose them a little bit. Cause like, I get the idea that yes, there's some, there, I, we in cognitive psychology we talk about a representation. So the idea that like the the thing that I'm experiencing uh, of the red tomato is a representation of a red tomato. It's not the actual physical thing. I can't experience that directly. I can only experience it indirectly through the my creative like you know uh, perceptional you know the create the, the perceptual world that my brain creates for me moment and, to moment. Yeah, and this is how I I would understand it too is that. Or, or the version that makes sense to me is that when you don't look at the, when you're not looking at the moon, it's not being represented in any way. Right. But when you look at it, you're actually creating that object in a sense by organizing it into something meaningful and distinct from things around it. Whereas that, that may not have existed before you apprehended it. Correct. Yeah, exactly. But I don't know, and maybe he may be, it, it may be going further than that. He, yeah, so I think that that's the sort of sort of the question for me is like I think what he's going is saying that the actual object itself is being collapsed into its physical objectness, objectiveness through the act of perception, and that would be through through a sort of a quantum like observer kind of effect. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And that to me is I I don't I mean it's interesting. It's an interesting idea. It's a funny idea too, because it's one of those ideas that uh, it's it's tough to disprove, right? Oh, it's impossible to disprove. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, almost, it's almost a definition of an idea that's impossible to disprove. I got a pen here, but when I don't look at it, that pen's gone. <laughs> You're wrong. Yeah, exactly. You're wrong. You can't. <laughs> yeah, but then then it has to you know re relate to also like you know all kinds of different. Um, sensors too so like if a camera is taking a picture of it then it's somehow it, you know i guess it's a question right like does you know is the whole chain of like experiencing it like if i look at the picture then the camera took the picture if, if i don't then it didn't well i think some of the tricky part here is that he suggests that in order for it to exist it would have to be apprehended by a conscious agent right right but i guess he's but he's kind of like a uh a panpsychist as well, though, isn't he? It seems so, but uh, I don't know if it because that just helps a lot if you if you are because then you know it's a lot easier because there are a lot more conscious agents, mm -hmm. so a lot more things to do the perceiving. Well, this gets into his third claim. So, just to sort of summarize a little bit so far, so the first claim that we talked about was the evolutionary claim: fitness beats truth. That fitness functions are what our perception is based on. Um, the second claim that we mentioned briefly is the user interface theory of perception. The idea that our perception is kind of like putting on a headset, a virtual reality headset, and we have a particular interface with the world 
Um, but that's not really what the world is. It's really something very different than what our experience of it is or through this kind of filter. Yeah, and, and sort of the an analogy there with a the computer is like, if there's an icon on your desktop that has like a folder kind of shape to it, that's not, that's in no sense like a folder. You know, it's just your inner, it's an interface, it's an icon. Um, you know, and so there's no, there's no real relationship between the ones and zeros and this icon. You know, that's, that's the argument that he's making that like when I see a red tomato, it's a similar kind of red tomato icon. There's no relationship between the, the what's up. So don't mistake the folder on your desktop with the actual thing. Right. So in the third part of, of these claims is the most radical one, I think. And this is the idea of conscious realism. The idea that um, nothing exists, exists except conscious agents. So he would claim that materialism doesn't exist. Physicalism doesn't exist. There's no such thing as atoms molecules, quarks, these may be useful things for us in our interface with the world, but they don't exist as such. Well, and this is and, a big one, right? This is a, yeah, <laughs> this is also where it's a little unclear. And I think this is, we were talking about this before the show, like it's a little unclear exactly what he's saying here because conscious realism, you know, is also realism is a part of it as well. So at different points in the book, he does say for sure that there is a real world out there in some, you know, but it's like, in what sense, you know, basically that's where the, the realism comes in. There is something that is being interacted with. Though he takes the primary thing to be conscious agents. And, yeah. and this is, I mean, this is, this almost feels like a, a giant leap beyond anything else that he's been talking about so far, but it, it effectively is it denies the idea that there are physical things in the physical things, you know, in uh, on the order of that should be taken literally. That should be taken right. literally. He, he talks. He talks about the idea that things should be taken seriously, but not literally. So, like the idea that, like you know, the snake. Right. You, know, you don't want to grab a snake and shake it because you know a rattlesnake because it'll bite you, even though it's not a snake and you're not shaking it and it's not <laughs> right. biting you. Right. You're still gonna die. You're still gonna. Yeah. <clears throat> They're going to have an effect. So, but that's the part that, that's the part that, to me that like, where I get real hung up is like, how does evolution act? He's, he, he, the only two things that he believes that are real are consciousness and evolution. Mm-hmm. Yep. Those are the only two things he, he believes in. Right. And so it's like how, but he never, I don't think ever adequately addresses how do those two things interface? He has this interface theory, but just says that it's an interface. He doesn't say how those things interface. Yeah, and this is this is where it gets a little complicated, I think, uh, in terms of a story, because <laughs> if you if you don't believe that the moon exists till you till somebody's looked at it, that the moon hasn't been around for billions of years, that it's only been around since there was a conscious agent to apprehend it in some sort of way, then. <laughs> Well, this is, I mean, that's a radical claim, right? Right. I mean, unless the moon itself is a conscious agent. Uh, which, which is... I think he's saying it is. I mean, I, th- well, that's, that's where it's a little bit of a question, right? Because it's like, yeah, I think he is a panpsychist, but he doesn't, he doesn't lay that out so explicitly. So panpsychist, just for terminological reasons. So panpsychist would be um, the idea that 
everything is conscious or the entire universe is conscious to some degree or another. A rock is conscious just to a very, you know, a very small degree, something like that. Yeah, exactly. It's something, you know, something along the lines of, you know, that our, our consciousness is like the universe understanding itself. And the, I, I, I kind of like that idea, you know, in general, um, I don't, I don't, I certainly don't hate it, but I know, understand the, the motivation for it. Yeah. I get the motivation. I think it's the, it's the, it's the way that it connects in his theory that, that I find kind of problematic. What is the mechanism of action that on, upon which evolution is acting? Yeah. You know, like if it's not a physical thing, if it's like, I think of evolution of like, if I fall out of a tree, I'm heavy. I slam, you know, I have momentum. I slam into this earth. That's like big and much, <laughs> much more massive than I am. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it ends poorly for me. And like, we can talk about like what that, what mass is and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But like, it feels like there's, there's something that feels to me like extremely real that there, like, that there is something that is called mass, well, that we call mass, but there's something behind that. There's some, because there's some real way in which that affects me directly, which is evolution, right? My fitness is directly impacted by gravity. Mm. You know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Seems but so if you don't have gravity, like, where, so where does gravity come from? Why does like our consciousness create gravity according to this theory? Like, I think one of the one of the difficulties with this is that what lies beyond is inscrutable that right. um, essentially what the theory is saying is that uh, evolution has not given us the ability to perceive the truth what is the truth well we don't know we have right. no idea right so it doesn't it, it doesn't propose an alternative theory here it doesn't propose you know something that you know what reality really is Right. It's just that right. it's not what we perceive. So the other aspect of this is, is the brain. What Hoffman talks about is that there are no neurons, you know, so there's nothing, the brain itself, we, we, we assign this special characteristic to it, that it's like the thing that is responsible for our cognition, for our experience of the world. And he's like, but there are no neurons. There is no brain. And to me, it's like, I don't know how useful that is as a theory. I, I, I think I get the motivation for it. And the, again, the reason why he's doing this is because he's arguing against the idea that consciousness arises from a particular physical configuration. He's, he is looking at the field and saying, listen, this is the way we've been approaching it since Descartes or whatever that, you know, we're looking and, you know, especially in the, you know, recent resurgence in interest in consciousness that we're looking for the neural correlates of consciousness. We're trying to explain what's important to us, our consciousness, in terms of the physical, you know, the physical interactions of our neurons and how it arises from physical matter. And he's saying, we've got nothing there. There's no, there's no good physicalist theory about where consciousness arises. It's a hard problem of consciousness, right? He's saying, well, let's start from the other direction. Let's say consciousness is fundamental. Let's start from there, because that's all we know, right? Mm -hmm. Sort of a, a little bit of a Descartes, um, you know, 
I don't know anything, but I know that I think. Let's start from that position. Right, right. Yeah, and uh, you know what? What to me there is is kind of interesting is that, you know, if we think about perceptions and we think about neuroscience and the brain, it's true that there is a there is a distinction between the thing that we're experiencing, and the physical, react the physical thing that's that we're interacting with that's causing that's causing that sensation, like wavelengths and color. Exactly. Or we were talking, you know, talking about like sound and how we hear hmm. words you know there there is a there's a relationship between the frequencies of the vibration of air that is created by our voices and the way that those that those airwaves impinge on the ear that then creates neurochemical signals that are processed by our ear and then our brain and ultimately we create words out of that there's no word, like there's no words in the air, right? Like the words are created in our brain, mm -hmm. but there is a very definite structure between the airwaves and yeah, every subsequent step that yeah. creates the word. It's very predictable. You can, right. And you it can... works in every, in everyone who understands a certain language will understand that word. So it yeah, is exactly. objective in that sense. It has a different kind of reality status than just, you know, an arbitrary relationship between airwaves and, you know, your experience of it and it goes through the brain. If you take out that part of the brain, you won't be able to experience that. It, you know, it, it, it seems like abandoning that sense that there is some kind of isomorphism between something in the world and your experience of it. I don't know how helpful it is. Yeah, right. That's another, I think that's another good point. You say, you mentioned the word isomorphism and just the idea that there's some clear relation between the two. We would, you know, we would think, okay, we're not perceiving reality directly, but at least there's a relationship between the two that's predictable. Hoffman would say, no, there's no relationship at all. Right, right, exactly. And, and this is like, uh, you know, with, with the, you know, in terms of like the quantum mechanics kind of aspect of it, if you get to that level, sure, there's, you know, it's, there's all these things are probabilistic, but there's still a relationship, right? Between locations and all this stuff. And, you know, when you perceive it, there's a collapse of these waveforms, but it's still, there's some underlying regularity to it. It's not, it's not random. It's not entirely random, right? It's, there's some underlying relationship between what you experience and, uh, and the thing itself. Well, I want to make sure, have we gotten, have we represented his, his ideas uh, clearly enough? Uh, I don't know. Um, These are, I mean, they're complicated ideas, so I, I'm sure we must be missing some, some right. aspects of this. And, and, you know, I would encourage listeners to, to read the book too, to get, to get a, a fuller flavor of this. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh it's an interesting book and it's worth, definitely worth reading. So uh, I agree. Okay, so if we've got the basic outline of things, so what is it, what's your evaluation, Joe? Uh, I mean, I guess the I found it to be quite thought provoking in terms of I really like the idea. Uh, I've always been attracted to, to idealism, hmm. you know the you know this uh, kind of Bishop Barclay stuff, you know that consciousness is sort of primary and, and creates the world, and there is there's some very interesting direct link between that and the nature of what we understand today from our best physicalist 
kind of neuroscience that there's something constructive in our experience of the world. Mm -hmm. And there, you know, I always love to talk about Sir Isaac Newton and that, you know, the rays themselves are not colored. You know, in other words, that color, it's not red is not inherent in the wavelength of the light. It's, it's our experience of it. I love that stuff. I, that's, mm -hmm. you know, that's what got me interested in psychology in the first place because it's just, it's cool because it's weird and it's not like what you think it would be. It's counterintuitive. Mm -hmm. And so and it does, it, so it does some interesting things, but I found his arguments extremely frustrating mm. uh, when he got into the world of this conscious agents and how his models prove that perception is not veridical mm. and that there's no, there's necessarily no relationship between the physical thing in the world and your experience of it. I didn't see none of, I didn't find any of his arguments all that compelling. Hmm. I mean, that was sort of where I land on it. Where, where do you sort of land on it? Well, I think the I think the different components of this can be treated um, somewhat independently. So the first, the idea of fitness beats truth. I have an issue with that too. Um, I, I think there's some difficulty with with the idea, um, and I think most perceptual psychologists out there would not argue with the idea that we evolved to. You know, we evolved to see um, fitness, and that's important. But I don't think that precludes the idea of, of perceiving truth. In any given simulation that you run, whenever you would pit something like fitness versus something else, fitness is always going to win because that's what evolution is, right? But that doesn't preclude the idea that through a more, maybe a more complicated, um, longer-term process that we find that a representation that's more objective, that that um, you know can be tested more thoroughly, and that other people agree with, might be um, something that our perception eventually converges on. Right. Yeah. Well, I think it's you know, in in his model, he's got uh, 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 one sort of uh, you know sort of objective function, which is the fitness function. And the other is like veridical perception. And he's got these as like independent, mm -hmm. like independent variables mm -hmm. in his model that are unrelated. And I feel like that's the arbitrary kind of magic in his model that makes mm -hmm. it work the way that it does. It's not clear that it could evolve in that way entirely separately, because if, if you, if you rather start with the premise that there is something physical in the world, it's maybe strange and not like what we experience mm -hmm. at all. Like, in other words, our experience, the qualia, the thing that we experience, the feeling of it may not be related in any way to the actual physical underlying thing, but there is a reliable relationship between mm -hmm. say wavelength and our experience of color. Lower mm -hmm. wavelength things are like blue and higher wavelength things are like red. And, you know, we reliably will experience that. And that will allow us that will allow evolution to act on that because we like to eat things, you know, that are, that are nice and ripe and we don't like to eat things that are rotten and color has helped us kind of parse those things out. And so we're, the, it's, it's the rottenness that we're really detecting, but it can only act on what it has to act on, which is this, you know, this iterative physical relationship between the wavelength of the light and your experience of that. I mean, again, like I think, like you say, if you if you make the assumption that there is an objective world and our sensory systems are, you know, poking against that, then it kind of makes sense that 
eventually we would we would discern some of the nature of it. If you start with the assumption that there is no physical world, well then, yeah, okay, it's harder to it's harder to assume that our perceptual systems will come to represent something that doesn't exist, right? So well, yeah, but then and then and then he you know he even actually in the in the book even actually quotes Neo uh, oh, from the from, Matrix. Yeah. Oh, not Neo. Who's the the um... Trinity? No, no, no. Uh, who's the Morpheus? Morpheus. <laughs> thank you. He actually, yeah, he even quotes Morpheus from the Matrix, you know, and is talking about like the blue pill versus the red pill. I mean, it's like if if it all starts with consciousness, then really the physical world, the four dimensional. I think he, this is exactly what he's saying. I think in the book, the four dimensional physical world that we experience space and time that we experience with our senses, with our sensors, like with our machines that we use, mm -hmm. pictures, all this stuff, all that stuff is a simulation. And okay, so it's a simulation. All right, fine. Why? It's, there's nothing is different. We still should act as though it is, right? Like the physical world, you know, just this whole thing of taking things literally versus uh, seriously. And in fact, I know, uh, David Chalmers, who is the philosopher who came up with the idea of a hard problem, has recently been working on some ideas about uh, VR and the nature of reality. And his claim is that virtual reality is reality. If it's convincing enough, it is reality. And in this case, you know, if there's no, you know, if there's if there's nothing that we're really missing, what is it that we're well, that we're not perceiving? Then, you know, why shouldn't we take this for reality? If it's a fully contained system and there's no other, you know, there's nothing that we're missing out on, there's no incompleteness that we're experiencing, then why shouldn't this count as reality? Yeah, exactly. And what does it buy you to to say that it's not? You know, um, I, yeah, so you, I don't know that there's a, there's a clear way that in his, in his theory that you would preference one or the other. But even believing that there is, you know, some physical reality Let's say that we, because the, the reality is the thing that we say co-create, even if we were just going to go there, like you experience it, I experience it. So together we're experiencing the same reality. There's some like reality status to it there. We're both, we're both sharing that we are experiencing the same thing. That does none of that even precludes that there might be, that the reality itself might be a lot weirder than we even know. Mm -hmm. That like this 11th dimensional space you know, it might be what really is going on, but that there's, doesn't mean that the, if, even if that's true, doesn't mean that there isn't some shared common tr truth that we are experiencing in some way. Right. It, it they can both be true. They can both be true. It, yeah, it does also in a, in a sense seem, you know, no matter how many layers of the matrix you pull off, right. You're still going to say that, you know, it's you're not really experiencing reality. So ground truth reality, right? Uh, and you'll never get there. Like, there's no scientific theory that'll that'll suggest that you're now at ground truth reality, and there's no right. further to go. You know, nothing bigger, nothing smaller, right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. <laughs> so, so that's where I really want to agree with them, right? Like, that's where, like, I think it, that, and I think that's exactly the level at which, like. It's, his ideas are super appealing because it's like, yeah, like, like there is, it's probably really weird how things work and like dark matter. We don't know anything about dark matter. Like, what the hell is that? Like, you know, but there's, there's always the hope that someday you'll be, that we'll be able to understand what dark matter is and how it's, you know, related to our experience of the world and something. Well, yeah. you know, that... And here's an interesting thing. I think one of the things that 
that gets a little um, confused in discussing these issues, I think, is the difference between perception and then a conceptual idea, right? Mm -hmm. Right. So we can have, you know, we can, we can perceive something, but then we also have an interpretation of it too. But I mean, if it's the, if the reality that we're missing out on is the reality of quarks and, you know, bosons and leptons and that stuff, I don't know that we could have evolved to have a perceptual system that would perceive that, you know, if it's really through a series of, you know, adaptive choices and, and that sort of thing. It's not clear yeah. that we could have a perceptual system that is plugged into all these quantum mechanical effects. Yeah, there's there's certain, but again, that's, but that's you know assuming that there is a physical reality that has certain you know reliable characteristics that are consistent. So uh, one thing we could talk a, a little bit about is uh, a critique of this that uh, came out uh, must have been about a year ago now, which is an article by uh, Bagwell that will. Um, we'll put up on the show notes called debunking interface theory, why Hoffman's skepticism is self-defeating. And uh, this is an argument. So he's a philosopher and the argument's a, a little longer than this, but the basic idea is that we can't use evolutionary biology or we can't use evolution as a, as a basis for our claims because we're claiming that uh, we can't trust our own perception. Mm-hmm. So how is it that we know that uh, we came about by a process of evolution? And mm-hmm. I, I guess what Hoffman would say a bit is that his theory, his interface theory, still allows for scientific discovery because you can still act on your perceptions to run experiments and trust the output of those experiments within the context of the simulation? I don't know. Mm. I'm not exactly sure why. He definitely said that you could do science, but but why? Like that, yeah. What do you think Bagwell would say about that? I think the, I mean, the idea is that uh, what Hoffman's using is not evolutionary biology. He's trying to abstract something even more out from it, um, that evolution or, or Darwinism is true in a universal sense something um, he's called universal Darwinism, that it applies even if, you know, whether we're just conscious agents or whether, you know, physical, you know, atoms and and biology really exists, it can be applied to both situations. Or it's universally true in some sort of sense that that reproduction by natural selection happens whether you're a physical system or just a bunch of conscious agents. Right. Exactly. It doesn't need to be a living being to, in order to for right in order for evolution to act on it. Yeah. All right. Well, hopefully we've given you at least an introduction to this idea, and we do think that that Hoffman's ideas are interesting and they've provoked an awful lot of thought in us. And we hope that uh, this is something that that resonates with you too. Again, I would highly suggest reading more on the subject if you're interested. Uh, because we've only covered the, the really bare details and, and some of the basic ideas. So uh, I don't want this to just be an advertisement for his book, but the name of the book is The Case Against Reality, Why Evolution Hid the Truth from Our Eyes. And it came out in 2019. Yeah, absolutely. Good good book, interesting ideas. And I think we haven't quite solved the problem of consciousness yet, but we're making progress there. 
think we were we're just about there. Probably next episode we'll solve it. All right. Thanks for listening. <laughs>